I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Kim Bolin has been reporting on British Columbia's gangs for almost three decades. In that time, she has covered dramatic changes in both the drugs and the type of gangs operating in that province and right across the country. Her latest investigative series in the Vancouver Sun is called Lethal Exports, and it follows her journey to five countries with connections to Canada's organized crime and drug trades. Kim Bolin joins us from our Vancouver studio. Kim, good morning. Good morning. As somebody who, as I say, has reported on gangs in BC and beyond for um, a while now, why did you want to look at, at the international influence of those gangs now? Well, I kept seeing these tiny hints that these guys were very influential at a much larger level or higher level than I had been able to get into reporting here from Vancouver. Uh, So I thought, you know, if I could just get overseas and talk to people there and see what was going on. A year earlier, I did go to Thailand to investigate the murder of a former B.C. resident who was a leader of the United Nations gang. And that murder uh, case, very sensational. He was gunned down at a seaside resort in Phuket. I sort of followed the track of the alleged killers. And we have one former military uh, officer from from Canada awaiting trial there as one of these purported hitmen. So, you know, that sort of set me off. I had a lot of intrigue. And then when we started seeing sort of record uh, shipments of methamphetamine seized at the Port of Vancouver uh, last year, you know, we're talking six tons, if you can believe it, all destined for Australia and New Zealand. I thought I need to check this out. I need to know more about this. What more were you seeing in terms of the changes in that gang activity over the past few years? Well, it's just this increasing level of sophistication. I mean, here in Vancouver, like in other parts of the country, we see this terrible gang violence on the streets. Uh, Lots of young guys losing their lives or getting charged with murders and going to jail for the rest of their lives. And they've all got a tattoo of this gang or that gang, the United Nations, the Hells Angels, the Brothers Keepers. So, I mean, I'd covered that in depth, right? But the people at the top are never getting charged. And, you know, they, some of them are operating overseas. I knew that, again, from reporting that I'd done over the last decade. So I wanted to see what was going on at that level. And I was honestly quite surprised by some of the things I found. You mentioned methamphetamines. People think of the drugs crisis in this country. Often it's fentanyl. But when did gangs in B.C. become big players in the the movement, but also the manufacture of things like fentanyl? Well, honestly, I think if you look all the way back, uh, the very entrepreneurial gangs in BC used to make a lot of money smuggling pot across the border. I mean, I'm, you know, going back to late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, we had literally pathways here in BC, you know, kind of rugged land where they would have hockey bags filled with pot. So anyone could make a lot of money. 
they grew so much that they started getting, instead of cash in return in the United States, they started getting cocaine. And sometimes they got firearms payment from the gangs down there. So when uh, cannabis was legalized, and even long before that, when the medical cannabis, you know, became more widespread on both sides of the border, these gangs started looking for new products and, you know, synthetic drugs, you can make them, right? So it's very easy to uh, set up a lab, uh, you know, even a small scale one, but now we're seeing kind of these industrial labs. The precursor chemicals are widely available in Canada, 90% of them are completely unregulated because they're used in a lot of legitimate industries. And these guys became kind of experts, uh, not just methamphetamine. And now, of course, we're seeing fentanyl. Uh, but, you know, MDMA, ecstasy, that was one of the first synthetic drugs that Canadians really began exporting uh, to Europe and to other parts of the world. There are gangs, as you said, that are right across this country. But I mean, why is it that the BC gangs were in a good position to make and export these drugs? Well, we've got a, a lot of land out here in BC. It's not hard to find uh, a remote place, you know, to open a lab in a barn. We see a lot of them. They're not that far, honestly, from the big city. But, and you've got a coastline. And we've got a coastline and we've got a port, you know, and it's a port where we have a number of Hells Angels and other people that have links to the drug trade working there. One of the things I learned on this trip was just how much of a concern so-called trusted insiders is uh, internationally for, you know, uh, customs services, border agencies, uh, not just in Australia and New Zealand, but elsewhere, you know, where they think people that are actually working on the port as longshore workers or inside some of the shipping companies are being paid a lot of money to look the other way or to assist. In Australia, for example, uh, they did sort of an investigation and they determined that they had, you know, a thousand people that they were concerned about working in ports in that country. I mean, that's a large number. And it's a smaller country than ours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we have something comparable, um, you know, it probably doesn't take all that many people either to divert something or have something, you know, because it is largely a, a mechanized system at the port, right? So I don't know if they'd have to, you know, who they'd have to have or what they'd have to have. But I don't know if Canada's even done some kind of study like Australia has done to look at that issue overall. Mm. You mentioned Australia, and I said in the introduction that you went to five countries to work on this series. Tell us about where you went. Well, I actually went to six countries, but one six of them countries. I haven't one of them I haven't written about yet. So oh, we'll see. Okay. I've still got a couple of stories that I'm up my sleeve that I'm hoping to do. Uh, but I prim I started in Australia uh, because the six tons of methamphetamine was destined for Australia. So I found that really fascinating that Canada, another Commonwealth country that's very similar to Australia, would be one of the countries that is a major exporter of these illicit drugs uh, to Australia because it's far away. Uh, so that was really really fascinating. Uh, then I went to New Zealand, which also has a lot of uh, Canadian methamphetamine and cocaine that's been transshipped uh, from South America through Mexico to Canada, then over there. Uh, these guys, uh, you know, who are doing this, they sometimes pick these convoluted routes because they think that they'll be under the radar that way. Canada is considered sort of a trusted uh, ally country. Uh, so sometimes those are the safest countries for organized crime to use to get their product into the places they want to go to. When you were there, what did they tell you, officials tell you about the influence of Canadian gangs in Australia and New Zealand? They have done some pretty interesting longer-term investigations there, uh, one in which they 
created a phone app, an encrypted phone app, the Australian Federal Police working with the FBI, and they got these phones into the hands of all these underworld figures. So for two years, uh, they were essentially listening and seeing all of the messages that they were sending back and forth worldwide. And quite an incredible investigation. What really came out of that was how closely all these groups are working together. So they're not fighting amongst they're each other. Not fighting. Even when you see that violence on the streets, they see it there in Sydney. We see it here in Vancouver and Toronto and Edmonton and Calgary and other places at the highest level. They're all cooperating. And we're talking about Hells Angels, Sam Gore Criminal Network. In Australia, the Comancheros is the big biker gang, as they say, bikies. Uh, that's what they call them down bikies. there. Bikies. Yes, that's a nice one. Uh, so they're all working together uh, with the Mexican cartels, with Middle Eastern organized crime, uh, because they all want to profit off this, particularly the methamphetamine, which is just goes for huge dollars in Australia and New Zealand. You also went to Fiji. Tell me what you saw in Fiji. Yeah, I had heard that Fiji had this, you know, relatively new methamphetamine problem. And of course, it's a poor country, and they don't really have any way of dealing with, you know, substance uh, use issues like we do here in Canada. And um, yeah, it was it was just heartbreaking, wonderful country, wonderful people. And uh, because it's on, you know, the sort of transshipment route that uh, these organized criminals use. They often stop in near Fiji or other South Pacific islands, you know, like the larger boats, and they unload their product. And then smaller boats, maybe yachts, maybe uh, fishing vessels are used to take the methamphetamine, the cocaine into Australia and New Zealand. So they have local people there that they pay to assist and they pay them with product. So now there's widespread methamphetamine use in Fiji. And, you know, uh, the the way they use it there is they inject it, which is not common here. And uh, there aren't very many needles. Uh, their drug users are sharing needles. HIV rates are on the rise. And really, really young kids are using this stuff, like 13, 14 years old, uh, right across the board. You know, uh, poor kids, but also, you know, kids in middle class families. And it's become a real crisis there uh, that the government is just now kind of acknowledging exists. Do you or does the government see the fingerprints of Canadian gangs in that drug crisis? Definitely some of the methamphetamine that's going there is from uh, Vancouver. Some mm. has been air freighted in and some of it has been, uh, you know, part of these major loads. Uh, so they do think Canadians are involved, as are other organized criminals because from other parts of the world, because like I say, they're all working together. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Is there any, I mean, you think of like global bodies that would help oversee um, international trade or international relations. People might point to the United Nations, for example, as one of them. There's a UN office on drugs and crime. Does that help police, if I can put it that way, this international crisis? 
Well, definitely the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. They're throughout the region. They're throughout Southeast Asia. They're in Australia. Yeah, they are doing what they can. They've certainly done a lot of studies uh, on the transnational organized criminals that they believe are involved in this. Uh, You know, I mean, as the Australian Federal Police Assistant Commissioner said to me, you know, it takes a network to combat a network, right? So law enforcement agencies are, are working together, you know, to both identify and try and tackle the problem. But they're also looking at other things because they don't think policing is really going to stop this. So they're trying to deal with industry bodies internationally to make things a little harder. Industry bodies like what? Well, you know, like shipping companies, Mm. like conglomerates of shipping companies internationally, right? Because, you know, they want cooperation uh, from industry, if you will, to help tackle this problem because, you know, like they even have, I got to go out with the Australian Border Force in Melbourne and it was really fascinating. You know, they have this really cool equipment, you know, like a little submersible robot and they kind of guide it towards ships that are uh, that are docked there in the port and they can look underneath the ships into what they call the sea grates to see if there are drugs hidden there because uh, these guys use so many different ways of transporting their drugs and lately they've seen there a lot of what they call parasitic attachments where no one on the ship even knows but underneath the ship there there might be a couple of hundred kilos of cocaine under the ship under the ship with an air tag in it it might be hidden inside one of these grates that they have under the ship or it might be literally you know kind of attached welded if you will to the bottom of the ship uh, they found you know 150 kilos of cocaine using this device that I got to see up close uh, it last October, another couple hundred before that. So like in that case, you know, it's not even a trusted insider likely that was involved. Like these guys are hiring divers. You said they would put an air tag on it so that an then if they dropped it, it, they would be able to figure out where the drugs went. Right. Know what ship it's on. Wow. And then they, they send divers, uh, you know, once if it gets to the port of destination, they actually send these divers, you know, criminal divers, right? Uh, and they have to go down and get the product and bring it up. And, um, you know, just over a year ago in Australia, there were these divers, they were literally flowing in. And one of them died trying to retrieve uh, the cocaine uh, from underneath the ship. So your mind is blowing a little bit when you think of the way uh, these, the creativity, if you will, of these transnational organized crime groups. It really is sophisticated. It's really sophisticated. And if you look at something like that, who do you charge? Even if you find it, who do you charge? You can't. You don't know who put it on at the other end. No one's showed up to retrieve it, right? So, you know, it's very hard to, you know, people think, oh, well, there should be investigations. People should be charged. They should be convicted. Well, who? You know, if you have no idea who's directly involved in that load. Tell me more about that. You wrote in a piece, almost eight tons of methamphetamine was seized by Canadian border agents in the Pacific region last year. Four times all the illicit meth seizures combined from 2018 through 2022. But despite these seizures, nobody was charged in BC for any of the loads. Most of them were headed to Australia and New Zealand. And critics say, these are your words, the lack of consequences is just one of the reasons why BC and Canada has become a safe place to do business for some of the biggest international criminals. Why, in the face of those sorts of discoveries, aren't people being charged? 
Well, to be fair, police are saying that the investigations into the record seizures last year are still open. So, you know, I suppose that means that we may see charges, though I don't think we will based on all the interviews that I've done. And, you know, what I'm hearing from experts, uh, there have been a few reports done on uh, transnational crime using Canada over the last year. And one of the things that you see consistently is just the lack of resources amongst federal police. Uh, we don't have any police uh, at the ports on the docks in any Canadian port. Uh, there was a designated port police that was disbanded in 1997. And then and, uh, you know, there were kind of these little waterfront task force, but they didn't operate right from within the port. Can right? you stop there and just explain why that was the case? There were police on the ports. Um, that's not the case anymore. Why, given what's coming through those sites, why aren't there police there? Well, right now, uh, the way it works, the federal government has decided that the, you know, city of jurisdiction where the port uh, is uh, would be responsible for any criminal investigations. But it's just not really practical. You look at uh, Delta Port, which is the biggest container port in Canada, and it's in the municipality of Delta near Vancouver, and you have a relatively small police force, Delta Police. Uh, they have to seek permission before they can even go onto the port, right? So, you know, it's not really, it doesn't bode well for criminal investigations if that's what you have to do. Uh, when the Canada Border Services Agency seizes uh, these record shipments, they contact the RCMP's federal policing section, and they decide whether they have the resources uh, to do an investigation. And, uh, you know, what I learned is that in many cases, these end up being uh, no-case seizures. In other words, we seized the drugs, we're happy about that, kept them off the street, if you will, uh, but we don't have the resources right now to do a more in-depth investigation. The mayor of Delta was not, is not pleased by that. He is not pleased, and he's really made this his mission. Um, he told me that, you know, when he was recently in Ottawa, sort of handing out this report that they commissioned on some of these problems and issues at Delta Port, uh, that some of the cabinet ministers he spoke to did not know there were no port police. So that that's pretty shocking to me. Uh, but, you know, I live in a port city, and you see the ports are all, you know, they're behind high fences, they're high security in terms of keeping people from the outside from going in, you know, so we don't really see what goes on behind uh, those large fences. He hired a consultant to look into what was going on. And there's a couple of things that you report on that this consultant found. One is that there's not really adequate security clearance for port workers. Yes, I uh, actually did a series on that, wow, almost, uh, well, nine years ago yeah. now, and it was basically how Hells Angels and other uh, people linked to organized crime, convicted of drug smuggling, uh, were able to work as uh, longshore workers here, and that's because only a few of the jobs require security clearance, and uh, so the vast majority of people who work at the port don't have that security clearance. And, um, you know, 
the way they hire people is the union, uh, you know, invites uh, a lottery. There's a lottery every year. You fill out an application, and all the existing longshore workers get an application. So, you know, in the case of Hells Angels, they give their application to other Hells Angels, mm. and there are more and more uh, that have been hired over the last decade. So it's an issue that's been known, and yet uh, no one will address it. Transport Canada is responsible uh, for uh, the few security clearances that are issued, and uh, there's been no move to make it more widespread. Uh, the consultant, Peter German, who's a former deputy commissioner of the RCMP, uh, he said, look, you know, we get there are 30,000 port workers. It would be a huge thing to try and get everyone a security clearance in a short period of time. So he was suggesting grandfathering in the existing workers and just anyone new who comes on board has to get a security clearance, which I think would go a long way to, at the very least, improving the public's confidence in what's going on on the ports. But he also said the Port Authority is concerned with security, not concerned with policing. That's right. That's right. And it's very secure. You can't get in there. If you, <laughs> but there, if you there's want. a difference. But there's a lot of daylight between security and policing. Exactly. And again, I don't think that the public necessarily understands that. Like, you know, pre 9-11, you could literally like ride your bike, you know, down through the containers at the port here. It was very wide open. And it's just not like that anymore. You know, there is a lot of security uh, keeping the general public out of that area, which, of course, there should be. But as uh, Peter German said, it doesn't stop people uh, from, you know, committing crimes within that area. So let's end with with what can be done based on what you have learned, what you've seen. Um, What what do you think and what are people saying that that law enforcement and government at a bunch of different levels, I suppose, could be doing to rein in what's happening with these gangs in B.C. in particular? Well, I think if there was some kind of fear of enforcement, it might be a deterrence. Not even enforcement, but fear of enforcement. Fear of enforcement, like that, that some action was taken, that there was a special task force, you know, particularly targeting, you know, transnational organized crime in Canada. I mean, it was interesting that the federal government recently announced that it was going to have, you know, a forum on auto theft because of the fancy SUVs that mm-hmm. are being stolen and shipped to Africa. And, you know, like, yeah, that's a good thing. You can take action when you you want to but you know what about uh you know major drug exports to other countries can we have a forum to talk about some of the more serious issues that are directly impacting people's health and life right uh, so i do think more could be done um you know we've got to figure out what we're going to do with federal policing you know the rcmp federal policing uh has a lot of vacancies you know so there's a lot of people Uh, You know, there aren't that many people to do these major investigations if we were to uh, put some resources into that. People I've talked to also said we need some legislative change that, you know, the laws in Canada haven't kept up with the uh, increasing sophistication of transnational organized crime. And, you know, what do you do when you're dealing with evidence that might be coming from another country, an ally? You know, you've got to protect that in some instances, and we don't have the ability to do that uh, in our courts in Canada right now. um, yeah, and uh, doing something about the the ports, like have a designated police force on the waterfront or at least a designated police force nearby uh, that could tackle some of these issues. You know, again, that would send a message that Canada takes this more seriously. Are you optimistic that any of that will happen? Hmm, 
I'm not really optimistic. I mean, you know, I've been a crime reporter for a long time, and there's always more crime, it seems. A lot of violence and gang violence that we haven't really been able to resolve either. But I do think that there might be a will to talk about it at the very least. You've reported on this for a long time. This is big money when it comes to these gangs and what they are involved in right now. I mean, do you need to keep your head down when you're doing this work? What, 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 what kind of precautions do you have to take? Well, I've, I've learned to watch my back over the years. I mean, I've had death threats related to some of the things I've covered for over 25 years. Um, you know, I don't think that when you're looking at the bigger picture, you know, they're necessarily going to come after you. But um, We'll see. I did kind of watch myself in Vietnam because I got some information that, you know, some people knew I was there and, you know, I should uh, be careful kind of thing. So I definitely, you know, um, make sure I'm looking around when I go out and get into my car, that sort of thing. But, you know, because I have covered it for so long, I also feel that, you know, um, so far nothing has happened. And I am determined to keep reporting in this area because I do think it's really important. And I do think that it's hard for journalists uh, to do this kind of work. It is really important. And I'm really glad to have read this series and glad to talk to you about it. Kim, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. It was really great. Kim Bolin is the 2023 BC Lieutenant Governor's Journalism Fellowship winner, and her new series, Lethal Exports, is in the Vancouver Sun. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.